I'm delighted to introduce John Gleason of the class of 1980, the 2016 recipient of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law. Gleason has served for over 30 years as a federal district judge and federal prosecutor. In that time, he has epitomized Jefferson's ideal of public responsibility, integrity, civility, and service. Gleason is a graduate of Georgetown University as well as the law school and a former law clerk to Judge Boyce Martin on the Sixth Circuit. He began his career in private practice at Cravath and in 1985 became an assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of New York. President Bill Clinton appointed Gleason a judge in that district in 1994. Gleason stepped down from the bench last month to become a partner at Debevoise in Plimpton. During his tenure in the U.S. Attorney's Office, Gleason served as Chief of Appeals, Chief of Special Prosecutions, Chief of Organized Crime, and Chief of the Criminal Division. He won praise along with the Attorney General's Distinguished Service Award for his role as the lead prosecutor in the successful 1992 prosecution of Mafia boss John Gotti on racketeering and murder charges. The students in the audience uh, are too young to remember how high profile the Gotti prosecution was. Gotti was known as the Teflon Don because none of his three previous criminal trials had resulted in a conviction. In 1989, the FBI installed a bug in a New York apartment where Gotti conducted his distinctive form of business. I can't resist quoting uh, one of the transcripts in which Gotti and his henchman, Salvatore Gravano, also known as Sammy Bull, speculated on whether Gotti would face his next trial in Brooklyn or Manhattan. Gotti thought it would be Brooklyn on the theory that Gleason, whom he referred to as this bleeping punk over there, um, had some inexplicable desire to see Gotti in prison. Uh, Sammy Bull demurred, arguing, I don't think it's going to be by Gleason. I think somebody with more brains. They don't want to lose this case. <laughs> Gotti's organization underestimated its opponent. As a judge, Gleason has made his most prominent mark as a critic of federal sentencing practices. At present, nearly 25% of federal defendants uh, who are convicted are convicted of a crime that is subject to a mandatory minimum prison term under the federal sentencing guidelines. In theory, this approach promotes fairness by imposing similar sentences on defendants who have committed similar crimes. But in practice, it has distorted our criminal justice system by almost entirely eliminating jury trials. Prosecutors gain enormous leverage in pre plea negotiations by threatening to bring a charge that carries a lengthy minimum sentence. That leverage is consequential. In 2014, 97% of federal criminal convictions resulted from a plea bargain and only 3% from a trial. In Gleason's words, the result is to, quote, make opaque what the law was intended to make transparent and to, quote, strip criminal defendants of the due process rights we consider fundamental to our justice system. Gleason did more than voice his disapproval. He was a moving force behind two alternatives to incarceration. One is a drug court, the other is for youthful, youthful offenders charged with nonviolent crimes. Both programs condition eligibility on sobriety, education, and employment. Participants are required to meet, to meet monthly with judges who monitor their progress, 
a task for which Gleason has volunteered. One of his last acts before leaving the federal bench showed Gleason's characteristic blend of innovative thinking and compassion. A petitioner filing as Jane Doe moved to expunge a 13-year-old conviction for defrauding an insurance company by faking a car accident. Gleason had been the trial judge. The petitioner's attempts to find employment kept coming up short when potential employers learned of her past conviction. Judge Gleason concluded that this hardship, severe as it was, did not meet the statutory standard for expungement. Rather than concluding there, however, he continued, quote, that said, I had no intention to sentence her to the unending hardship she has endured in the job market. I have reviewed her case in painstaking detail, and I can certify that Doe has been rehabilitated. He attached to the opinion and presented to Doe a signed certificate of rehabilitation that she could present to potential employers. Judge Gleason, it is a great pleasure to welcome you back to Charlottesville. Your service to this country has been remarkable. Please join me in welcoming the 2016 Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medalist in Law, John Gleason. Thank you, Dean Mahoney, for that uh, kind introduction. My, my mentor was a wise and kind and a uh, wonderful man, Judge Gene Nickerson. He used to say the, the only manifestation of flattery in the real world is the ability of a federal judge to absorb flattery. And I can now say with confidence that applies equally to former federal judges. There's <laughs> quite a few things I would change if I were king, and I'm going to get to a few of them in a minute. But the excessive, undeserved deference that's paid to federal judges, and now on occasion former federal judges is definitely not one of them. Um, as you've heard, I've recently turned a page in my career, and uh, I'm on to a new endeavor. I'm excited about it. I think change is good, but I've already noticed a change in how some people treat me that it's definitely an exception to that general rule. Um, by the way, you know, I'm pretty sure this new phase isn't going to be my last. I know you students are looking up here at us and thinking, geez, you know, you're old. I think maybe I'm not even in the twilight of my career anymore. I'm beyond that. It's dark. Crickets chirping. But you're wrong. You know, life is short, but careers are long. You know, and until four weeks ago, I had coffee every morning with the great Jack Weinstein, who's going to turn 95 this summer, and he's still carrying a full caseload, he's still changing the world. And in terms of longevity, he's not some random exception. I had five colleagues who I left behind four weeks ago who were combat veterans of World War II. And I've learned so much from them, Jack especially. And in particular, I've learned the importance of looking critically at things we see every day, at being conscious of the fact that Sometimes unfairness and injustice, it's right there, right under our noses. And the more a part of our everyday lives those things become, the harder it is to notice them. Now I'm going to, I'm not a PowerPoint guy, and that's going to become apparent to you in a moment. 
But uh, there we go. And uh, you can tell from the title of this address, there we go, that um, I want to talk to you about sentencing reform, and in particular, the need to reform sentencing reform. There's nothing I care about more in my professional life, which is saying something, because even as the remarks of the dean have made clear, I've been involved and been lucky enough to be involved in some pretty important things. This is the most important to me. And let me start with a little background. Beginning in the 1970s, the federal and state governments moved away from an era of what we called indeterminate sentencing. We desperately needed that reform movement. And my criticism of that movement here today, of the results of that movement, is not meant to suggest otherwise. Under that old indeterminate regime, judges exercised virtually unbounded sentencing discretion. To give you an example, a drug courier who's arrested importing cocaine would face a count of importing cocaine and then face a second count of possessing that same cocaine with intent to distribute it. And that defendant faced a maximum possible punishment of 20 years per count, and the judge could impose those sentences consecutively if he or she wished. So that defendant could be sentenced to probation or 40 years in prison or anywhere in between. And the sentencing discretion wasn't just broad. It was unguided. Its exercise was almost always unexplained by the judges themselves. And it was essentially unreviewable by the appellate courts. So the single most important decision of the many decisions federal district judges made back in that indeterminate era, whether to deprive someone of liberty, and if so, for how long, was the only decision for which we gave them no guidance, for which we required no explanation, and over which we had no effective review. I started as an assistant U.S. attorney in 1985, so my experience as a prosecutor straddled the old era and the new one, which I'll describe for you in a moment. And I saw those shameful sentencing disparities firsthand. It was true then, remains true today, that on any given day, the government can arrest as many people coming off certain flights at John F. Kennedy Airport as there are agents to process those defendants. I still, to this day, I remember some of the flight numbers from my days in general crimes. Avianca 052, flight 007 from Lagos. In all respects relevant to sentencing, these defendants were identical. Extremely poor people who agreed out of desperation to try to smuggle drugs into the country, usually in their bellies, in exchange for small amounts of money. They'd be arrested on the same day, indicted on the same day. Often as not, they'd plead guilty on the same day, and sometimes they're all sentenced on the same day. The only difference in their cases was the judge their case happened to be randomly assigned to after the indictment. And that random event was hugely important. Judge X, I'm using these uh, denominations because these judges are still there. Judge X would routinely give those couriers 20 years. And Judge Y would just as routinely give them 18 months. Other judges would fall in between. 
And it wasn't as though we needed these courier cases to understand that judges were all over the map in terms of harshness in sentencing. We already knew that, but the cases did a, a good job of placing the problem in stark relief. It was really unconscionable. Now, parole blunted the effects of those disparities, so that 20-year sentence would usually turn out because of the grant of parole through an opaque process by the parole commission. It would be reduced to six and two-thirds years. The 18-month sentence would be reduced to six months. But still, those are dramatic, dramatically different outcomes for similarly situated defendants. And besides these, those opaque and unpredictable parole commission determinations were considered yet another evil because they made every pronounced sentence in federal court uncertain as well as disparate with other sentences. So in an effort to end that lawlessness, the reform movement back in the 70s and 80s in both the federal and state systems sought to restrict the authority of sentencing judges. In the federal system, some of the authority was just taken by Congress, which enacted mandatory sentencing laws. And a mandatory sentencing provision is exactly what the phrase suggests. When it applies, it must be followed by a judge, even if the judge thinks the mandatory sentence is unjust in that particular case. In addition, Congress vested significant sentencing authority in the United States Sentencing Commission, which Congress created in 1984 in the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, and instructed to create sentencing guidelines that would both cabin and guide the discretion of federal sentencing judges in ways that weren't intended or even anticipated. A good deal of sentencing authority was also shifted to prosecutors. As was mentioned, I was a federal prosecutor at the time, investigating and prosecuting gangsters and I and my colleagues figured out very quickly how to turn that power to our maximum advantage. Finally, to remedy the uncertainty problem that inhered in a system where parole existed, parole was abolished. Now, there's so much to be said about the reform movement that created today's federal sentencing regime and so little time here, but I think it's fair to say we've gotten to a point where it can be summed up by saying that this new regime, it's now almost 30 years old, so I guess it's not that new, was intended to usher into our courtrooms certainty, transparency, uniformity, accountability, all admirable goals, and they've been achieved to some degree at least. But that regime has turned out to be characterized more than anything else by dramatic increases in sentencing severity for a variety of reasons, most of which are pretty clearly identifiable and subject to correction. Many more defendants went to prison, and they went to prison for much longer terms. Here's a, this is the only reason I'm using a PowerPoint today. I wanted to depict for you what happened to the federal prison population over that period in a, in a way other than just saying it to you. The, uh, Prison population went through the roof. The reform movement was from, from indeterminate to determinate sentencing. It was also occurring in the states. So the state prison populations 
saw the same dramatic explosion over the same time period. We incarcerated our way into having 25% of the, uh, there we go, 25% of the world's prisoners, even though we have only 5% of the world's population. On a per capita basis, we've blown away the rest of the world. And when you look at comparable countries like the United Kingdom, Germany, you can see how much more we depend on imprisonment as a response to crime. The costs are astronomical. They vary from state to state. In the federal system, the per prison, per inmate, per year cost hovers around $30,000 per inmate. That's just one of the direct costs. Indirect costs are even more daunting, the costs of supporting prisoners' families, lost tax revenues because of the huge numbers of employed, excuse me, of unemployed present and former prisoners, and on and on. For almost five years now, this is why it's easy to sum up the results of the sentencing reform movement that needs reformation now. For almost five years now, the three institutions that make federal sentencing policy, the Congress, the United States Sentencing Commission, and the Department of Justice, have agreed that our prisons are overcrowded and something needs to be done about it besides building more prisons. We've proven once again that identifying a problem and talking about it, on the one hand, is fundamentally different from actually fixing it on the other, but there's broad bipartisan agreement that we have an over-incarceration problem that needs fixing. Now, you ask anybody in the corrections business, and they'll tell you there's two basic facts that drive prison populations. How many people you put in prison and how long you put them in prison for. So the two ways to deal with prison overcrowding are to sentence fewer defendants to prison and to shorten the terms of the rest of them. And you could do both of those things pretty easily, right? You could decide that, say, every fifth defendant will get probation, will not go to prison. And you could shorten the terms of those others by 20% across the board. That might do the trick, but obviously that could produce results we don't like. You need to reconcile any effort to reduce the prison population with the needs of public safety, and those crude measures obviously wouldn't do that. So we need to go about it more intelligently. We need to identify classes of defendants that are being treated too harshly, either by the imposition of prison terms that we can identify as unnecessarily long, or by the imposition of prison terms that we can identify as unnecessary at all. There's actually quite a few things we could do, but I don't exactly have all day, so I'm going to give you just three today, two sensible ways to address the uh, problem of prison terms that, for argument's sake, need to be imposed but are too long and another that will ensure that some of the people that we don't need to imprison at all stop getting sent there. Three measures, simple, effective, grounded in history and law and social science. One for Congress, two for the Sentencing Commission. There they are. Congress should amend the mandatory minimum drug laws to require proof of leadership or managerial role as an element of the crime. 
Sentencing Commission should delink the drug trafficking guidelines from the mandatory minimums, and the Commission should authorize sentences of probation for successful completion of judge-involved intensive supervision programs. There's no reason you should understand what I mean by these proposals right now. But shame on me if you don't understand them by the time I'm done. And I want to emphasize how many other facets of this larger issue there are. Recidivism-based enhancements, the virtual abolition of probation, collateral consequences of conviction. Dean Mahoney alluded to, to a case in which I addressed that unbelievably important issue in the reentry phase. Race in sentencing, which infuses itself into all of these issues the dysfunction in, in the Congress and in the Commission. There's a lot of other things we could, could address. You're just going to have to invite me back next year and confer this honor on me again. We can finish up. But we're just going to focus on these three for now so I can address them to the degree they deserve. The first two are very closely related, so I'm going to treat them together. And by the way, there's nothing I'm saying to you here that hasn't saying to you here today. It hasn't been distilled from opinions that I've written in the last few years. So the first two are the mandatory minimum drug trafficking sentences and the linked guideline ranges. The culmination of the sentencing reform movement in the federal arena was the enactment of that Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, which established the Sentencing Commission, instructed it to fashion sentencing guidelines that would govern federal sentences. Those guidelines would get rid of that zero to 40 range I alluded to earlier. They would provide narrow ranges within which judges would be required to sentence defendants. Ample guidance would be provided about where within those ranges the sentences ought to be. The commission opened for business in the beginning of 1985. Its first set of guidelines were to become effective November 1 of 1987. History is so important, you know, and I wish I I wish I appreciated this when I was a law student. I do now. But, you know, just seemingly random events can change the course of segments of our justice system. And one of those occurred on January 19, 1986, about halfway through the period in which that original commission was coming up with the first set of guidelines. University of Maryland basketball star Lenny Bias, who people of a certain age, like me, remember well, extremely popular player, was selected number two in the draft, the NBA draft. He was up in New York at Madison Square Garden for the selection, went back to College Park, partied, and by the next morning, Lenny Bias was dead of a cocaine overdose. A Congress, this was 1986, a Congress that was already galvanized, fully engaged in the war on drugs, acted quickly it enacted the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, the ADAA, as I'll refer to it. Now, before the new law was passed, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the sentencing range for everyone convicted of a drug trafficking charge in federal court was anywhere from zero years, probation, up to 20 years. And the ADAA created mandatory minimum sentences and enhanced maximum sentences that have now become central features of our 
federal sentencing landscape. And despite the speed with which the ADAA was enacted, the purpose of the new law was stated clearly by Senator Byrd from West Virginia. A five-year minimum sentence with a maximum enlarged to 40. So the zero to 20 count becomes a five to 40. Mandatory minimum five, maximum 40. Was specifically intended for managers of drug operations, drug trafficking operations. A 10-year mandatory minimum with life as the maximum, was intended for the leaders, the kingpins. Most people would agree that defendants who have managed or led drug trafficking businesses deserve severe punishment. But right from the start, maybe in its, because of its haste, Congress made a key mistake. The severe sentences that were intended as punishment for the drug dealers who, operate, who occupied those roles in drug organizations weren't triggered by role. The law is passed, used drug type and quantity as the triggers instead. So the law triggered, so if I can pull this up, the law triggered the five to 40 sentence enhancement intended for managers by proof of an offense involving 28 grams of crack cocaine, 100 grams of heroin, 500 grams of powder cocaine, and instead of hinging the 10 to life sentencing provision on the government's proof of kingpin or leadership status, Congress used those quantities times 10. 280 grams of crack, 1,000 grams of powder, excuse me, of heroin, 5 kilograms of powder cocaine. So if an offense happened to involve a drug type and quantity of this sort triggered the uh, every defendant involved in that offense, excuse me, whatever his or her actual role could be treated as a leader or manager at the option of the United States Attorney. Let me pause just for a second. This, those of you who are students of this know that I've, I've actually included updated quantities of crack cocaine when they, as originally enacted in the hysteria, as a result of the hysteria surrounding crack, which is new, those quantities were actually five grams to trigger a mandatory minimum of five years and 50 grams. And it takes, in a crack spot in Brooklyn, it takes about 90 seconds to distribute 50 grams. It takes about 10 minutes to distribute 280 grams of crack cocaine, for that matter. I think it's obvious that this scheme, as enacted, is not irrational, right? All of the things being equal, the more drugs a defendant deals in, the more culpable he is. But the truth is that drug quantity is a poor proxy for culpability generally and for a defendant's role in a drug business in particular compared to defendant A who recruits a dozen teenagers to distribute cocaine in a New York City high school with defendant B, an addict, who's given an ounce of cocaine to stand at the entrance to a pier while a boatload of cocaine is being offloaded. Defendant A is obviously much more culpable. It's the sort of defendant Congress had in mind when it enacted the 10 to life sentence enhancement. But he won't even face a 5 to 40 charge if the conspiracy is nipped in the bud before it deals in more than half a kilogram of cocaine. Defendant B, on the other hand, can be subjected to the mandatory sentence intended for kingpins based solely on the amount of cocaine on the boat. Now, this mistake of equating 
drug quantity with a defendant's role in the offense didn't have to have adverse consequences. As I mentioned, these enhancements only apply when the prosecutor invokes them by citing them in the indictment. All the Department of Justice had to do was to invoke those mandatory minimums in cases where it alleged and could prove the supervisory roles for which they were intended. Which, by the way, here's a key fact. Try not to glaze your eyes over with data. But here's a key fact. The combined uh, managers and leaders of drug operations in the federal criminal docket is never more than 10 percent. It always hovers around 7 percent, the number of defendants who get the aggravated roles for which these harsh punishments were intended. So all DOJ had to do was uh, restrict the deployment of those harsh sentences to the cases in which the defendants were in that slice of the docket, the 7 percent who had have aggravating roles. But for two reasons, the mistake that Congress made in 1986 has had devastating consequences and does so to this day. First, DOJ initially <coughs> disregarded the purpose of the mandatory penalties. It turned a law that was specifically intended to inflict harsh penalties on a select few into a sentencing regime that imposed them on a great many, for the most part, with a few exceptions. It charged defendants with mandatory minimums whenever it could. Even more important and more consequential and insufficiently remarked upon, even by folks who study this, is what the commission did. The timing of this turned out to be so critical. As I mentioned, those mandatory minimum sentences occurred while the original commission was fashioning its sentencing guidelines, creating them. It was right in the middle of a two-year process of gathering data about the average sentences in the pre-guidelines era. And the mandatory minimums were far more severe than those average sentences that were meted out before the ADAA was enacted. And indeed, that was the point of the law. The point of the law was to inflict harsh punishments on leaders and managers. The Commission's own analysis of the uh, pre-guidelines data revealed that the average sentence for offenses involving one to three kilos of heroin was four to five years. But there was a little bit of a conundrum, a problem for that commission. And the issue, the problem, was that the new law provided for a 10-year mandatory minimum for a kilogram of heroin. How would it look in the courtroom if a defendant had a guideline range, guidelines range, based on empirical data of four to five years. And to have that be so much lower than a mandatory sentence which would trump the guidelines, a mandatory sentence of 10 years. The commission had options for dealing with this problem. At the same time, the reform movement produced commissions in the states as well. And some of those state commissions based their own guidelines on empirical data and said, look, if there's a mandatory provision that trumps these guidelines, so be it. The United States Sentencing Commission, without any explanation, didn't take that route. It jettisoned the data entirely and incorporated the mandatory minimum provisions in those, in the ADAA, in those mandatory minimum, uh, those type and quantity, incorporated those into a sentencing grid. So, for example, an offense involving one kilogram of 
heroin, which qualified for that 10-year mandatory minimum, was assigned a base level, base offense level of 32, which corresponded to a guideline range of 121 to 151 months, 10 to 12 and a half years. Base offense levels for lesser and greater quantities of those drugs sloped upward and downward accordingly. This linkage, the linkage of the guidelines range, guideline ranges to the mandatory minimums resulted in a much more punitive sentencing regime than Congress intended in passing that law in 1986. I told you the intent of the law, a two-tiered minimum sentence, mandatory minimum sentences target at the 7% of the caseload that occupy managerial or leadership roles. But the guideline ranges that the commission created back in 1987 took the severity meant for that narrow slice of the docket and spread it proportionally across the entire drug trafficking caseload. That increased severity of federal drug trafficking sentences has been an integral part of the story of mass incarceration. That slope I showed you on the graph a few minutes ago is due principally to these events. By 1991, the length of federal drug trafficking sentences increased by two and a half times, especially over the last 15 to 20 years when, for reasons I don't have time to address, the mandatory minimums actually applied at sentencing to fewer and fewer defendants. The reality of our sentencing landscape was those defendants escaped the mandatory minimum. They were out of that frying pan, but right into the fire of sentencing guidelines that were patterned, linked to those mandatory minimum drug types and quantities. The, uh, as a, just as a, a matter of process, the, there was no explanation of this by the, uh, sent, the original sentencing commission, essentially uh, acted as though it formulated the guidelines based on empirical data, a subsequent commission, the staff at least of a subsequent commission, pointed this out. You know, I, this is, I've, I've been talking about this for quite a while, and for the longest time I felt I was the only one talking about it, so I felt I needed corroboration, like I was some kind of accomplice witness. And here was my corroboration back when I was the only one talking about this, and that is the staff of a commission pointing this out. How unfortunate it was for historians that these, that that decision, that linkage decision was not explained by the commission because it had an unbelievably profound impact on what happens in our federal district courts on an everyday basis. There have been efforts to influence these policies. Four years ago, I wrote a decision, United States versus Jamel Dossi, calling on DOJ to seek those mandatory minimum sentences only in the cases Congress had in mind when they were enacted, against leaders and managers, not against the low-hanging fruit that constitutes the bulk of the federal drug trafficking docket. Later that year, in United States versus Diaz, I called upon the commission to delink the drug trafficking guideline ranges from the mandatory minimums, to craft less severe sentences based on the empirical data it gathered, back when the original commission formulated those guidelines. Attorney General Holder listened, actually, and acted. In August of 2013, he issued a memorandum to all federal prosecutors, directing them not to charge those mandatory minimum 
punishments just because they could, just because the drug type and quantity in, in the case made it possible. The new policy in the memo didn't restrict the use of those mandatory minimums solely to kingpins and managers, but if followed, it would go a long way towards narrowing those penalties to the limited category of defendants Congress had in mind when they were enacted. The problem is the policy isn't followed all the time in half of the federal districts, and it's never followed in almost a quarter of them. It's always been the case. It's one thing for an attorney general to pronounce department policy, but quite another for line prosecutors around the country who see attorneys general come and go to follow the policy and to implement it the spirit in which they was promulgated. As for the commission, it seems determined not to delink those guidelines ranges. It continues to base sentencing ranges for drug offenses on those harsh mandatory minimums. What makes its refusal so frustrating is it actually agrees with the results that would be achieved if the guidelines were delinked and if the empirical data were the driver of sentencing policy rather than those mandatory minimums. The Commission supported the Smarter Sentencing Act last year, which wasn't enacted, but it made it out of committee, and called for the, a reduction of the 10-year mandatory minimum to five, of the five-year to two, and would have directed the Commission to make corresponding reductions, commensurate reductions in the guideline ranges. So the Commission itself believes that its own sentencing ranges should be lowered dramatically, and it has the authority to do so but it refuses to exercise that authority unless Congress first reduces the mandatory minimums by statute. The reasons for that dysfunction are, in my view, pretty clear. But again, it's another topic for which we don't have time here. So there's the backdrop for my first two proposals. The first is directed at Congress. Not sure what that slide, the rest of that slide might say. But I already told you what they are. First is directed at Congress, and it's pretty simple. And this is what happens when you go back and identify where we went wrong, right? Once you identify where we went wrong, the route out is pretty simple. Those mandatory minimums were intended to be inflicted on leaders and managers. The Department of Justice hasn't deployed them in that spirit, has the discretion to deploy them otherwise, so that discretion should be taken away. Add as an element of the drug trafficking offense, supervisory role to get that mandatory minimum of five, managerial role. In mandatory minimum 10, add as an element of the offense, leadership status. The second fix is by now obvious, the commission should lead for a change, rather than wait for the coast to be clear before it affects sensible sentencing policy by its own amendments to the guidelines. It should delink those guidelines from mandatory minimums and lower them. So let me turn to my third proposed reform. It arises out of, you'll be happy to hear, I'm just about done with this, uh, this PowerPoint. It arises out of those of us in the Eastern District of New York. I've left too recently to talk about the Eastern District of New York as them rather than us. It arose out of our determination to see whether there were people we were routinely sentencing to prison who shouldn't be imprisoned at all. 
we concluded the answer was yes, and the results include two alternative to incarceration programs, and I'm so grateful to Dean Mahoney that he's already foreshadowed what I'm about to say to you, because these programs are small, but they're a really big deal. One is a drug court. It's called the Pretrial Opportunity Program, or POP program. The other is a, a youthful offender court called the Special Options Services, the SOS program. The idea behind them was simple. You know, when people are arrested for conduct that appears to stem from their addictions to drug or drugs or alcohol or, or from an utter lack of supervision as adolescents, we should at least consider trying to help them instead of reflexively sending them off to prison. The POP program and the SOS program are intensive pre-sentence supervision programs. They're not re-entry programs, they're no-entry programs, where judges meet monthly with participants and their supervising officers, where the pretrial services officers and treatment providers are actively involved in the participants' lives to successfully complete our drug court. Each participant has to remain drug-free for 12 consecutive months, obtain a high school equivalency certificate, they don't already have one, seek and obtain, seek and retain, excuse me, employment, comply with the conditions of the drug treatment programs they're required to attend. The SOS participants have the same educational and vocational requirements. In addition, they receive further intensive supervision designed for its youthful participants, anywhere between 18 and 25 years of age. When a participant successfully completes either of the programs, they can avoid or at least shorten a prison term. That was the original conception. As I'll discuss in a moment, it's become possible for them to avoid a conviction altogether. So these are significant benefits to the defendants, and they're also significant benefits to their families and their communities, the communities that we serve. These initiatives have been described as innovations, and I'm I couldn't be more proud of my role in bringing them about. But the truth is the federal courts are woefully late to the table when it comes to reforms like POP and SOS. For many years, there have been similar initiatives in the states. And the states actually have to balance their budgets. You know, to us feds, it seems like such a quaint notion. But they have to balance their budgets. So when the economy went bad more than a decade ago, they worked hard to make sure they got the best bang for their prison buck. One of the ways they did so to great and now proven effect is by implementing drug courts and other problem-solving courts. The data from these programs is now, the social science is pretty well developed in terms of the state systems. There's 2,700 drug courts in the states. They serve 136,000 people. And again, I'm gonna be merciful on the data, but you can read it for yourselves in the opinions I've written in the National Association of Drug Court Professionals website. These drug courts work. These problem-solving courts work. There's no dispute about the fact that when judges are made part of the recovery process in a supportive role, when people interact with someone who occupies that position of authority in that kind of role, in a supportive role, it works. It reduces recidivism rates. It enhances drug treatment retention rates. People relapse less frequently. The cost savings are enormous, both in fiscal and in human terms. Our POP and SOS programs have been successful. All but two of the 
28 successful participants so far have received sentences that did not include incarceration. Those results alone, I'll suggest to you, compel the conclusion that the programs have achieved their initial goal. And by the way, I can't give you all the data. If you just Google alternatives to incarceration in the Eastern District of New York, you'll see a, a report to the Board of Judges, fairly recent report to the Board of Judges that describes the programs in detail and includes a bunch of data. So if you're a geek like me, I invite your attention to, to that, to the, our court's website. The, uh, as I say, the, those results alone would, I think, be cause for celebration. The, our, our whole point was to provide alternatives to incarceration. But the truth is these programs have succeeded beyond our hopes. When I created the POP program more than four years ago, I went to our United States attorney at the time, Loretta Lynch, and said, just want you on the side. Don't need you as part of it, but I want your tacit support. And then when they complete these programs, I want your actual support. I told her, these are not reentry programs. They're no entry programs. I want your backing on that. I want your support for sentences that don't include incarceration. Well, Loretta saw me and raised me. When the first graduate of the POP program appeared for sentencing, Emily Leach, who was convicted of smuggling 13 kilograms of cocaine into the United States, she had turned her life around so fundamentally, so admirably, that when I called the case for sentencing, the assistant U.S. attorney said, you're not going to need to sentence. We're going to move to dismiss the charges entirely. And thanks to Loretta's leadership and courage, really, you know, the easiest thing in the world I know this. The easiest thing in the world is to be a tough prosecutor. It takes courage to be fair and compassionate. And thanks to Loretta and her successors, for fully 36% of our successful participants in POP and SOS, the programs have not just become alternatives to incarceration. They've become diversion programs. Their charges have been dismissed. They avoid a criminal conviction as well. And there is simply no overstating the importance of avoiding the collateral consequences of a federal conviction. I'm especially proud to report to you that our programs have inspired real change. It's grassroots change. Over the past three years, we've hosted delegations of judges, pretrial services officers, probation officers, prosecutors, defense attorneys from all over the country. They came to Brooklyn, watched our programs in action, asked us questions about them, went back home, and created programs inspired by our POP and SOS programs. This, uh, you can't, the whole point of this is you can't read it because there's too many districts now to put on a slide that you could read. I'm happy to report that programs like ours are now up and running or on the drawing board in 21 of the 96 federal districts. I raise this in the context of a call for reform because if all you had to go on was the Sentencing Commission's guidelines manual, you'd think this entire grassroots movement was illegal. The most recent of our POP graduates placed this in clear relief for me. She came before me on a sentencing day last December. Sinem Dakmichi is her name. She came into my court in July of 2013, eight months pregnant with a raging eight-year-long opiate conviction. She had already lost custody of her seven-year-old, 
daughter due to her addiction. And when her second child was born a month later, that second daughter was born an addict. She was taken away from Sanem as well. She'd been in drug treatment before. All of our successful participants had been in drug treatment before, but none in the drug court model with judicial involvement. Over the next two years, Sanem took advantage of the opportunity that the pretrial opportunity program gave her. She didn't just get clean, which is a huge deal. She also weaned herself off methadone. For those of you who know a little bit about this, that's an even huger deal. She got a job. She went to family court, earned back the custody of her kids. She's now raising them. When she came into my courtroom last December for sentencing, the guideline manual told me she should go to prison for anywhere from 37 to 46 months for conspiring to distribute oxycodone. The government came in, though, and said the public would best be served if the charges against Sinem were dismissed. So, got it? Even though the prosecutor was telling me she shouldn't even have a conviction, the Sentencing Commission was telling me she had to go to prison. My specific requests to the commission have been made on a number of occasions. They are to amend those guidelines to encourage such programs. It's not that hard. It's okay. Tell the judges that it's okay to give probation for someone who successfully completes judge-involved intensive supervision program. Granted, it requires a modicum of trust for judges, but I don't need to show you that graph again. You saw what happened when we stopped trusting the judges. I've asked the commission to take steps to inform the federal courts around the country about these programs, create a page on its website where all the formulating documents for these courts around the country can be posted, where the data can be posted, to assist in gathering that data. You know, change comes so slowly, and I don't mean to suggest for a moment by telling you about SINEM that I think that policy change should be driven by anecdotes. It shouldn't. It needs to be driven by data. But those anecdotes can inspire you, inspire you to collect the data. And, you know, one last point on these alternative to incarceration programs. You know, for far too long we've had a criminal justice system in the federal arena that has been one-dimensional. You know, guilt is adjudicated almost always by a plea of guilty. Dean Mahoney pointed out to you what our guilty plea rate is now. And the defendant goes to prison. That's been our system for the last 30 years. Produce the over-incarceration crisis we're facing today. These programs are small. They gather about 4 to 5% of the caseload. But they're a big deal. In and of themselves, they produce fiscal cost savings, human cost savings that are meaningful. And we need them. We need them. They put a human face on a system that is so desperately in need of a human face. Before I stop, I need to thank Dean Mahoney and President Sullivan and the Jefferson Foundation for honoring me this week. I'm really overwhelmed by it, deeply grateful, determined in the years ahead to prove myself worthy of this honor. I honestly don't feel worthy of it now, but I was smart enough not to turn it down. I need to thank Dean John Jeffries, my mentor and friend over the years. My sister Winnie came and her husband Kevin. I'm so delighted they did that. And my daughter Molly's here. You know, I have 31 years, so lucky to have 31 years in public service. And public service is a reward, you know, in itself for the people who are in it, for their family members. You know, the family members are the ones who 
incur the opportunity costs that in here and being a public servant for as long as I was. And they did that. So I'm grateful to my wife, Susan, and my other daughter, Nora, as well.